Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The race is on, and now the dust has settled on the 2023 season, it's time to ask what we've learned. We've picked out seven aspects of the season to interrogate and analyse, and bring a few essential statistics into the equation. I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to look back at the most educational storylines of the year are Scott Mitchell-Mallon and special guest, Sean Kelly. Let's get to our special guest first, Sean Kelly, who might be better known to some of you as Virtual Statman. And for those who haven't heard of Sean, you'll probably have been hearing his work for years. So welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thanks for joining us. And perhaps you can tell us and our listeners a little bit more about what you do. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast today. Um, it's uh, not a nice little way to cap the season after we've watched Max Verstappen disappear off into the sunset. My job is basically all the facts and figures you hear in a Formula One TV broadcast, whether they're on the graphics, whether they're mentioned by the commentator themselves, the vast majority of them are written and prepared by me. Somebody has to be there uh, to keep them uh, honest with regards facts and figures while they're trying to commentate on a Grand Prix, and I am that guy. Yeah, so we can also say you're not responsible for the misuse of some of the statistics, though, as well. Uh, well because that's yes. one of the things with statistics. They're great, but they can be abused. You have to take a firm line, Ed. I appreciate a high standard of fact-checking at all times. <laughs> and applications, of course. And Scott Mitchell-Malm, you're not averse to a statistic, are you? No, I like statistics. I share your aversion to um, the misuse of statistics. I don't feel like F1 has descended into football levels of misuse of statistics. I don't... I must admit, I, I'm a bit. I, I'm not quite as tuned into broadcast as probably our listeners are, because obviously when we're working trackside, we don't get commentary piped in, and you're kind of paying a little less attention to the peripheral graphics on on a broadcast, and it's more about the detail. But I can't think of any time I've heard what's a good football comparison. It would be something like the first person to have scored points eight races in a row when the weather conditions are like this that's the kind of granular uh, like it's technically a stat but is it really a stat (laughs) yes yeah I do agree and in fact I I, I am on your side Scott because I often say our job or or my job really I don't really work with anybody as such um, is to be like the ball boy at Wimbledon you know, we're not the reason you've come, we're not the thing you've come to see. But if we do our job properly, we actually improve the product you have come to see, which is the event itself. So our job is to supplement what you're seeing without taking the attention away. So when you come up with a stat with multiple caveats like that, it means nothing. So it shouldn't be in the show. So you've got to stick to the things that the, the lay person can go, oh, wow, that's an interesting statistic. You know, Lewis Hamilton has just done something that no one's ever done, you know, blah, de, blah, de, blah. So you want to keep it simple. But we do have anomalies like Kevin Magnussen starting from pole position in eighth on the grid at Sao Paulo last year. Uh, George Russell not getting a hat trick, even though he started from first, set the fastest lap and won the Grand Prix. Those are things that make me see a therapist. (laughs) I quite like, I think my favourite one in recent years is probably, um, and this isn't, I I, I think this doesn't quite fall into like the technicalities of statistics, but more so the technicality of how F1 at the time was recording stuff. And it was Valtteri Bottas being quickest in qualifying and winning the sprint race, but not getting pole. (laughs) <laughs> because he didn't actually start the Grand Prix there. <laughs> yeah, although I, I would say that is that is the correct application because pole position is f- the, the driver in first on the published starting grid. That has always been the correct definition. Yeah. It's the Magnussen thing that used to drive me around the bend because he was <laughs> never on pole position for the Grand Prix itself, but yet he has a pole position. So Haas and Magnussen have a pole position, but not a front row start in Grand Prix history. Somebody explain that one. At, at the risk of being sucked into an argument we're not meant to be doing. It's one of those difficult things because the poll stat is useful insofar as it tells you how many times people have top qualifying. So it almost, it shows how stupid the sprint races really are because <laughs> to, for the poll position, actual value of those statistics, the Magnuson number is more reflective of qualifying. But of course he wasn't on pole position. So it just shows, oh, I, I blame sprint races. 
I, 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 I'm, I'm on the other side of that fence in that, uh, to me, first on the starting grid is pole position. For instance, you know, Jack, um, uh, Cliff Allison didn't get pole position at Arvis in 1959. Uh, Jackie Stewart was not on pole position at Silverstone in 1969. Alan Jones was not on pole at, uh, I think it was Zolder in 81, I think, um, because of various minor transgressions. Um, so ultimately, when someone switches on the television, the person in first position in your eyesight is pole position. It shouldn't be more complicated than that. You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful, though, because otherwise we're going to put ideas into Stefano Domenicali's head and there'll be some kind of special new statistic that gets invented, like qualifying king. And then that will be specifically for the number of times someone tops a qualifying session. And then we'll all have another reason to hate sprint weekends. <laughs> I would be happy to sit in a room with Stefano Domenicali for as long as it takes for him to say, OK, Sean, OK, I get it. I get it. Stop. We'll, we'll just keep it the old-fashioned way. <laughs> well, I think that would be a very, very good way to approach a lot of things in Formula 1, probably. But uh, we've digressed anyway. I think it just shows how problematic the whole uh, the whole sprint approach is. But that's not what we're going to talk about right now. What we are going to talk about is things we've learned during the season. So we've basically got seven headers, for want of a better word, that we're going to discuss. Uh, things that have sort of been shown. And we're going to discuss them. And there'll be a few statistics thrown in here and there. And hopefully it'll shed a little bit more light on the season we've just seen. So first up, we have got Charles Leclerc is the fastest driver in F1 over one lap. Scott, the ball's in your court on that one. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're throwing me to the line straight away on this one. I have actually, I think, a few times now, I, I, think, I, I think you can't it's it's quite it's subjective and i think the data does will, will inevitably shift season to season but i i think there's a very good case for, for for this and i think this season kind of underlined that in that every every amazing driver especially every driver that's amazing over qualifying lap needs certain conditions to to operate at their very very best whether that's leclerc max verstappen lewis hamilton lando norris whoever with leclerc one, I think there's a there's an operating window for him where even if everything's not there, he just pulls this magical qualifying lap almost out of nowhere that seems to transcend the car's level of, level of ability and what seems to be possible in that given moment. And two, when the uh, the conditions are there, he is just sensational. And I think, and I'm going to go back to Ed. You will be familiar with this. It's an old office favourite point of discussion. This goes back several years, which is if you had to pick a driver, if your life was on the line and it was a qualifying session or a race, the conversation I think can take many forms. But if you had to pick a driver with your life on the line to do a qualifying lap or you know, do your time trial, do your qualifying session, whatever, of the current grid, I think I'd pick Leclerc. Yeah, and I think probably to an extent the statistics will start to bear that out, which is a perfect segue to Sean telling us about the numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, the thing is with Leclerc, Leclerc's created the greatest dichotomy between qualifying and race pace since the very the dawn of the first turbo era, the end of the seventies, the start of the eighties, especially. Uh, I mean, he's failed to win his last twelve starts from pole position. That's the second longest streak in Formula One history. Only Rene knew. Had a long streak. That was his first 13 pole positions in Formula 1. He failed to win before he finally won at Paul Ricard in, in 82. But that was often unreliability of the machinery because, of course, early turbo cars tended to blow up in races. Um, with Leclerc, well, there's been a little bit of Ferrari, shall we say, um, unusual strategy calls, uh, unreliability and so on. Um, but also just simply that Red Bull are quicker in race pace. But Leclerc is certainly blindingly quick. I mean, he out-qualified Science 15-7 this year, exactly the same as 2022. It was 14-8 in 2021. Um, it was 12-9 over Vettel in his first season at Ferrari. So he's always been very, very quick in, in qualifying, especially. That's always been a natural gift of his. And we, and we should also say that just because a, a driver is occasionally beaten by a teammate does not necessarily mean that they are not a sensational qualifier. I think we were slightly spoiled uh, in the early 90s by Michael Schumacher because, uh, I mean, Schumacher missed a gear in qualifying at Adelaide in 91, was out-qualified by PK. He was not out-qualified again by a teammate for four years until Spa 95 when he crashed in final practice. And by the time Benetton rebuilt the car, it had started raining in qualifying. Um, and, you know, even Ayrton Senna 
had a, Ayrton Senna did not qualify for a Grand Prix once, Imola 1984. Uh, now, admittedly, there was a mitigating circumstances. There was an engine misfire and a tyre contract dispute. But, I mean, he was slower than Pierre Carlo Ginzani. And I never, never miss an opportunity to bring up Pierre Carlo Ginzani in any podcast. Um, but Senna himself, I mean, his first race at Lotus, he was outqualified by Elio De Angelis. Gerhard Berger's first race at McLaren, he outqualified Senna by three quarters of a second, believe it or not. Hakkinen's first race at McLaren, he outqualified Senna by 48,000. So just because Leclerc does not dominate a teammate necessarily does not mean that he is not the fastest driver over one lap, uh, further to what Scott's point was. Especially because in the in this era of F1, and I think I would go so far as to say, especially with this type of car since we've had that we've had since 2022, there the there, there is a there is a window of performance that just means that dominating your teammate now can just mean edging them by a tenth or two every single time because it's so so difficult to actually get the most out of it. Yeah, and we're also operating in despite what Max Verstappen gives gives the impression that he gives us, we're operating in the closest Formula One grid that we've ever had in history. You know, we've had several, we had multiple Q1 sessions this year where less than a second was the spread between first and last. That, in the, you know, in the early 90s with the Williams FW14B was the difference between first and second. And now it's the entire grid. So you need this, the slightest change. You know, the, the wind licks through, the wind can change direction. And it could mean your teammate outqualifies you. So it, it's probably not fair to compare, you know, for instance, Senna in the turbo era on qualifying tyres with the the format in which they qualify today with the grid being this close. Yeah, and, and with the way that it's gone this season with a car like the Ferrari where Leclerc has taken responsibility for the first part of the year where he was probably persevering a bit too much with his favoured setup for a car with a with a vehicle that just couldn't couldn't handle it like likes it nice and heavy on the front nose on the well on the nose I should say I've just used Ed's uh, absolute favorite um uh f- f- favorite bit of misspeaking there I meant front end I meant front end um he he likes it with a very strong front end um uh because he can he's got prodigious ability to live with a, a lively rear and the, the, the livelier the rear, the more you can manipulate the rotation, get the car pointed in the direction you want mid-cornering and, and get on with exiting the corner. Leclerc, the way he dances a car through the corner on a qualifying lap is absolutely stunning. But that has bit him a few times this year with the nature of that Ferrari, which is why you've also seen qualifying sessions where he's crashed out or he's ended up underperforming or that run of races where he was out-qualified by Sainz, who was the one who got a couple of poles for for Ferrari in, in that spell when Leclerc was contained by the car. But by and large, especially when he's able to do what he wants to do in a car, and I think this goes for if you gave every single driver on the grid the exact car that they wanted for qualifying, I think Leclerc would just, just edge it. I don't think he's a choke artist come Sundays. I think that's because he puts his car where it doesn't deserve to be on the grid more often than not. Is he the best driver on the grid? Would I back him in the race to save my life if it was over a full Grand Prix distance? Not as convinced by that as I would be of saying he's the best qualifier in Formula 1 at the moment. And he's also got a tremendous traction sensing ability. I mentioned before that he's very good late in the lap on tyres that are a bit over temperature just in squeezing that last bit of grip out of them in the final traction zone. Very, very impressive skill set. But yeah, interesting to... It'd be great to put him up against a Verstappen and see where that kind of tolerance for the rear instability stacks up between the two of them because it's quite hard to compare. But uh, yeah, certainly I think Leclerc's lived up to that this season. Let's move on now to our second one, which is age hasn't caught up with Alonso yet. Sean. Yeah, Alonso, the grand old man of Formula One, who, of course, now has fewer poles in his career than does Charles Leclerc. Just coming out of that last point, Leclerc's actually got more career poles than Alonso's got in 20-plus seasons in Formula One. But I would argue that Alonso was never, even at the peak of his powers, we never looked at Alonso as thinking, well, this man is the ultimate over one lap. Obviously, he was always really good, but we didn't look at him and think, this is the greatest qualifier we've ever seen. It always seems like Alonso was this, this canny performer in racecraft, and he could always come up with a way to school everybody else and keep people behind him, come up with a great result in cars that really had no business being up there. I would still contend that his 2012 season in, in the Ferrari was the greatest season I've ever seen by a driver that didn't win the title. 
um, because there was no way that that car should have been anywhere near a world championship and he nearly won it. Um, so he's always been brilliant in race pace. But Alonso now, where is he now? 42 years old. Um, probably thinking to himself, where did his career go? I mean, Verstappen in the last two years has won more races than Alonso has won in his entire career. Um, so um, he must be thinking to himself, where did it all go wrong? I've thrown away quite a lot of my career with bad career moves and, and bad political shenanigans. Um, but he is doing something that we haven't seen really in Formula One in, in living memory. Jack Brabham won the first race of 1970 at Kyle Army. Uh, he was a month shy of his 44th birthday. Now, since then, only one other race has been won by a driver over the age of 40. Do you gentlemen know which race that was? Over the age of 40. Um, Start of a 10. <laughs> oh, Mansell, Mansell. Yes, yes, there it is. Nigel Mansell at Adelaide in 94. He was 41. That was when he took his last uh, victory. Now, so it's a very unusual thing, you know, in fact, almost unprecedented for a driver over 40 to be winning a, a Formula One race. Um, with that said, Alonso scored eight podium finishes this year compared to 10 podium finishes scored by all other drivers since the end of 1970. So Alonso scored almost as many podiums as every other over 40s driver in the last half a century. In fact, before Alonso this season, only four races had been led by a driver over 40 since 1970. That was Lafitte at Detroit 86, Mansell aforementioned, uh, and Michael Schumacher led three laps at Japan 2011. Now, Alonso only led three laps this year, admittedly. That's less than Yuki Tsunoda led this year. Um, but still, nonetheless, it is a renaissance for Alonso. Um, it was his best championship result of the hybrid era. It's, it's amazing that he still never won a hybrid Formula One race. He's, he's been there so long. His last Grand Prix victory was in a V8. Um, but yes, it, it hasn't caught up with him yet. It, it really, there, is, there, are, there are arguments that there is a, a decline in the performance as you get older, but also a decline in the type of car you get to drive. Um, of course, Mansell won his race in 94, driving the car that won the Constructors' World title that year. So... Um, yeah, in, in a way, I suppose Alonso was owed a fortuitous career move. You know, finally, he moved to a team at the right time after a succession of badly timed moves that set him back into the midfield. And I'm convinced that that wasted decade almost is part of the reason why he's still going and he's still determined to. And some years ago, I, I put a cover line in Autosport in a feature about Alonso. I didn't do the feature, but I did the cover line and it was wasted talent. I got a bit of stick for it, but it was just because even quite some time ago, it was clear that he just wasn't getting the results that he was capable of. Yeah. I mean, to me, it, 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 was, it was obvious quite early on. I thought, I don't know how this guy come, pulls a result out of the bag every week. Sometimes he could be driving something, a car that seemed relatively mediocre. And then five laps to go, you'd be like, hang on a minute, Alonso's in fourth. Where, how, where did he come from? I didn't see him. It was like a, like a magic trick that he would pull every week. And um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, I believe he is one of the great wasted talents. He is, to me, unquestionably as talented as Hamilton, Verstappen, Vettel, anyone we've seen in the 21st century. The way that he has handled his, his comeback in general has been very impressive. And I remember being in the, the media session he did when he did when his deal with Renault was initially announced, which would have been, what, in the middle of 2020? Um, because it was after Ricardo's exit was was confirmed. You, you mean his most recent Renault deal? Yes, yeah. yeah <laughs> I thought yeah. you were going to say. Thought you were going to say two thousand and two. No, no, no. <laughs> no um, and he said um, he because that was when that was the first of about four hundred times he's been asked about his age in the last few years. That's an unofficial stat, but it's about that number. <laughs> um, he and he said um, he's never known a, a, a race to be or a you know qualifying session to be determined by the date on someone's passport. Which was a nice line, but uh, almost as almost proven by the by, by the stats that you were sort of explaining before. You know, putting into context the the lack of success for older drivers, especially drivers over the age of forty, shows that actually, to a degree, the date of birth on a passport is a factor in how successful a driver can be. That that is just that's been proven by history. But what's been amazing is that Alonso just seems to continue defying it. And my favourite example of that is something that you just just shows that something raw and instinctive in him hasn't waned, which is his ability on opening laps. Apart from it was very it's why it was so surprising when he he clattered into a spin 
um, in Vegas this year at the first corner because generally speaking, he's been superb on first laps. The instinct kicks in, he darts around trouble, senses it, and he just almost invariably moves forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the amount of times I felt like he's just got a handle on what's going on here. He's like a chess player. Um, you know, he just seems to know two moves ahead what, should, what he should be doing. Um, and that's why I said he doesn't need to rely on qualifying on pole position. Um, but uh, yeah, it, age, I mean, I can think of recent examples. Michael Schumacher, I think, was shown the way by Nico Rosberg when he had his comeback at Mercedes. I, I felt for several years that Kimi Raikkonen was kind of phoning it in at Ferrari um, and relying, I, I felt he was trading on past glories and the fact that, you know, oh, Kimi being Kimi, all this stuff. And I thought, you know, if that was another driver, he'd have been sacked by now. Um, and, and Alonso, to me, is still operating at the top level. I still feel like we're getting maximum Alonso as opposed to just, you know, a tenth quicker than Lance Stroll is good enough. It's like, no, no, he's still out there trying to push for the maximum. And ultimately, it's one of those things that if there is any physical decline at all at this stage, it'll be very, very small and it's offset by the experience and the intelligence. So it's it's completely invisible. So yeah, absolutely delivering and no question he's capable of winning. I hope he does get another win again because he's, he deserves it for the effort he's put in and he's absolutely an all-time great even if the statistics I, I, I've been sitting I've been I've been sitting on that stat hasn't won since Spain 2013 every week I have to trot it out for the broadcaster <laughs> notes okay here here's how many days it's been how many races it's been blah 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 and I'm sitting there thinking this is the year this sometimes I'll be like this is the race we're going to do this we're finally going to use this stat and then we never did because <laughs> Alonso would be going along and then be like no Max is just that little bit too quick for everybody again well hopefully that stat that can be retired at some point, maybe next year even. That would be a good story, wouldn't it? Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's move on to our third topic now, which is there's no salvaging the Mercedes car concept, regardless of technical director. Scott, do you want to take that one? Yeah, it was obviously a year that started with a lot of hope and expectation from inside Mercedes and also probably a little bit of hope and expectation from us outside as well that Mercedes just felt as the dominant force of many of the years that preceded uh, this one that it was in the best place to come back at Red Bull versus, say, a Ferrari or one of the, the other teams hoping to make a a step forward and it was fairly clear from the moment that car ran that there were problems and by the time we got to the first race of the season in Bahrain and they were comprehensively defeated in in, in qualifying Mercedes didn't hold back senior figures Toto Wolff, Lewis Hamilton, George Russell they, they, they were pretty flat out about this it, they'd got it wrong again and this probably wouldn't be something that necessarily got changed in season. As the season developed and certain changes were brought to the car, as expected, a little bit of performance unlocked really, but no colossal change. And there have been arguments back and forth over the last two years about, you know, was it the side pods? Was it this? Was was it that? These various items almost became totemic with, with regards to the Mercedes concept and the Mercedes struggle. But everything that's been changed hasn't changed the fact that the this Mercedes, just like last year's, was not good enough. The only difference to a year ago is that Mercedes hasn't got to the end of the year thinking, actually, maybe we can salvage this concept. There was no Brazilian Grand Prix victory to, to trick everybody into thinking, oh, actually, maybe if we stay the course, we'll be rewarded. So, yes, there was the change of uh, technical director, the, the switch with James Allison coming back into the fold, throwing himself... Back into the uh, into the coal phase, Mike Elliott moving up initially to chief technical officer and then out of the organisation entirely. There was an interesting comment that James Allison made recently, actually, about how 
almost fragmented the recovery had been because everybody was so focused and so determined to improve things. You almost worked a little bit too individually rather than than as a team. And there are big changes coming next year. That was obvious from the from the very start of the year. But I think one of the things we all knew going into this season was is make or break for Mercedes to show that its independent direction would work or, or wouldn't work. And we got an answer fairly early on that it wouldn't work. And by the end of the year, that answer was absolutely emphatic. And I imagine this is quite an easy one statistically to justify because the big zero in the wins column pretty much tells the story, doesn't it? It does. But I would caution also that, I mean, most people were in the zero wins column except for Max Verstappen this year. And although they're bad by Mercedes standards, they're still not that bad because they're still the second, they're second best in Formula One this year um, in the Constructors' Championship. And to me, if anything, the, the struggles that they've had in the last couple of years do validate the immense job that they did in winning eight consecutive Constructors' titles. It sort of proved that, oh, it's not a foregone conclusion that every year you're going to win this forever. You know, it's like, no, no, every, you know, you've got to uh, stick at it. Nothing's guaranteed based on your previous successes. And the other thing I would say concerning Mercedes is it's not necessarily a car thing, but the, the motivation of Lewis Hamilton, who has has had the career, arguably, that Fernando Alonso should have had if he'd made the right career moves with 103 wins and seven titles. It, it, it amazes me that Hamilton still has the motivation to be doing this because I know I understand that Alonso would want to get out there and sort of prove, no, I, I was good enough all along. You know, Hamilton's done that. I mean, Hamilton could have packed it in after Abu Dhabi 2021 and said, you know what, that's enough for me. Um, the fact that he's still in there sort of digging away and trying to make a bad car good, to me, is almost as impressive, certainly psychologically, as when he was just winning everything. Because it's like, guys, I, I don't need any of this. I've got, you know, a billion dollars in the bank. I've got 100 wins. Why do I need to be contending for fifth and sixth on the grid? Um, so I, I do think one of the things that come out of it is it's so impressive to see Lewis Hamilton still going 10 tenths, trying to, trying to find a way to win. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that he'll be absolutely a force once in a race winning car again. The Mercedes thing is very interesting because by their own admission, James Allison says this, one of the things that caught them out was the fact that they put all their problems down to the porpoising and bouncing last year. And they thought once that was trouble shot, they were fine. And they weren't listening to the drivers enough about that entry instability that they thought was purely down to the porpoising, but was actually about something else. So there's all, there's all those things. And that's, that's why they didn't respond as much as they should. And that's why we say the car concept isn't salvageable. They're going to have a brand new car next year. Some big architectural changes with the monocoque and the gearbox and the rear suspension and all that kind of thing. So uh, the big question is, can they change it right? Because it's one thing to say they need to change it. They've edged in that direction as far as they can, but will they get it right? And then can they develop it? That's the big question. Yeah, I mean, it was, sorry, not to interrupt, just to end the point there. Ed, um, uh, we've at least seen from Aston Martin and McLaren that you can make that jump. So we know that it's, it's, it's in the ether. It can be done. Absolutely. And the more people who've got race winning cars, the better, because the more exciting the racing is. Let's move on to our next one now, which is Oscar Piastri has elite speed. Sean, this sounds like a good one that will lend itself to some numbers. Yeah, well, of course, Piastri came into Formula One this year with McLaren. I think he's made a very positive impression. I mean, he's a super cool dude. I mean, he's not he's not very demonstrative. He's calm under pressure. He's just calm all, all the time, it seems. I think that tutelage of Mark Webber has really helped him. Spoken to Mark a lot about it this season. About um, he felt like he, he didn't really have to teach him anything about racing. He wasn't even interested in management, but it, because it was Oscar Piastri, because he knew Piastri was the real deal, he wanted to get involved. So that said, that said it all right there. Now Norris, Lando Norris, has never been out qualified by a teammate over the course of an F1 season. Oscar Piastri out qualified him seven times this year, um, which is really going well for a, a rookie season against uh, someone who's a pretty seasoned campaigner now in Lando Norris, who's very established at McLaren. Um, with that said, he did it seven times this year. I mean, Daniel Ricciardo out-qualified Norris eight times in 2021. So make of that what you will. Science out-qualified Norris eight times in 2020. So he's certainly at least par already as a rookie. Um, most of what McLaren achieved this year came after Austria or from Austria onwards. So the first half of the season kind of was a bit of 
a bit of a bit of a wash really for for Piastri. Although having said that, if you only if the championship had started in Austria, he still would have finished in roughly the same position in the championship. He would have beaten Alonso because Alonso kind of went backwards in the second half. Um, but first rookie since Lewis Hamilton to take multiple podium finishes in a rookie year. And uh, we had that oddity. I mean, we were talking about statistics that make your head spin. LaSalle, the sprint in LaSalle. Um, Piastri became the first driver to win a Formula One event of any description from pole position, not driving either a Red Bull or a, a Mercedes or a Ferrari since Lewis did it at Monza in 2012 in a McLaren. It had been a long time since we did, he, he had done that. Now, whether or not Piastri has elite speed, well, he won on his F3 debut back in Austria 2020 when we started the COVID season. Um, but he only won one more race that year and he beat Logan Sargent and Terry Porcher in the last round shootout. And you might look at those names and think, well, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Uh, in F2, he won on his debut weekend. Uh, but he didn't really start to become convincing. He made a breakthrough some point in mid-season in F2. And then he took pole at the last five consecutive feature races. Now, that, that to me is a big... I don't know what you call it, a green flag, I guess, uh, of, of the, uh, his ability that he could just, you know, he was obviously at that point too good for F2. Um, but I did think to myself, well, he might need a bit of sort of bedding in, shall we say, in F1. It might not be an immediate hit because he wasn't that in F2, but he came round to it and he became great. And I think in the second half of this season, we saw the same thing because, you know, I think Norris was kind of showing him the way. Uh, but there were definitely times when he had the upper hand on him at times in the second half. What do you guys think? Well, I think it's fair to say that Piastri would have um, exceeded everybody's expectations externally and even internally within McLaren for how he performed this year because the the, the progress through the junior categories, we, we, we've talked about Piastri a few times on this podcast and if memory serves, I think we did a bit of a deeper dive into him in, during the summer break. That that F3 and F2 back-to-back success came in very, very different ways. The F3 season was rooted in racecraft and just superb driving in the races themselves after what Piastri acknowledged and admitted, actually, was one of his weakest seasons in terms of qualifying. He really struggled. How many times have we heard this? A driver coming into one of the F1 feeder categories and really struggling to get the peak of the tyre in qualifying um, that is what he knew by the end of the season was his biggest weakness and stepping up to F2 he knew it would be something to address difficult to do that straight out the blocks in Formula 2 but he chipped away it and it was getting on top of that which led to the the runner poles that you were talking about there Sean and it's that same quality that has underpinned everything he has achieved this year there's clearly great ability there over one lap over a, over a race distance that's the part that gets a lot harder to do in Formula 1, as he's discovered this year. That ability is there, no question. What he has to augment that is a stunning work ethic and uh, an ability to to process stuff in real time that means whether it's between runs on track or once he has come out of the car and debriefed with his team and goes back later that day, later that session, or the next day or whatever. And as McLaren often refer to it, he cashes in on those opportunities to improve. It's what he did in F3, it's what he did in F2, he's done it straight out the blocks in Formula 1. And I just think that is a fantastic foundation for a Grand Prix driver. And to me, the most impressive thing he did was put it on the front row at Suzuka this year at his first visit. I mean, out-qualifying Lando Norris, I thought, wow, okay, well, if you can master Suzuka at the first attempt, that you know, that's going to make anybody sit up and take notice because that's not... I mean, that's one of the ultimate driver circuits. It's certainly not a po- Nobody could ever accuse that of being a point and squirt sort of thing. I was going to ask both of you, actually, because um, Sean mentioned the, the Qatar sprint race win. Um, to me, that's the first example we've had of the sprint requiring almost a new um, stat, stat category or something to be created. Because I have seen a few people refer to it as his first win in F1, which is kind of it's technically correct which we all know is the best kind of correct but it's not really a first win in f1 is it because a a win in f1 a first win in f that's a grand prix isn't it so how do we frame a first because it's never happened before no one's taken their first win in f1 in a sprint so i I would say also um george russell got his first uh, win in a sprint as well the day before he won 
in Sao Paulo. Of course he did. But yeah, but then negated it 24 yeah. hours later. So it did, I didn't have to worry about it then. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you do have this anomaly. And I do agree with you that this should be c- categorized separately. It should not be conflated with a Grand Prix. It is not a Grand Prix distance. It is not the primary event of the weekend. It's not what we're building up to. It's not where you get the majority of the points. It should be categorized differently. But, you know, it, he, he does go in a category with people like Keke Rosberg in that he won his first Formula One event in something other than a Grand Prix. so And in a Theodore, of all things. Yes, if, if Piastri could win a race in a Theodore, then, <laughs> then now we're talking. Now we're getting into the long grass, the type of long grass I, that I enjoy wading into with statistical history. I, I want to... Uh, I, we were sort of, um, sort of getting ahead of ourselves in the running order right at the beginning. And I don't know, Ed might well have some more Piastri nuggets to deploy, but we've almost almost again segued into like another thing that we wanted to talk about what we've learned because we just we just in this conversation from the very start of this podcast we just keep coming back to the sprints and the problems caused by the sprint format well i was going to serve this one in your direction the current sprint format doesn't work i think you can probably justify that one quite easily scott yeah i mean i had less of an issue with it initially at the start of the year i i didn't for me the idea of what they've what kept being I think the trying to be pushed on everybody as like sprint Saturday didn't it didn't offend me too much in terms of breaking up the the race weekend mainly because since the sprint was introduced I've found sprint weekends really difficult to follow like it just everything happens when you're on event when you're on site at the event like it's it's really kind of quick fire and I I must confess it's a blind spot for me how you've would follow that and what that experience is like as a fan because I've never had to follow a sprint weekend purely as a fan. I've followed Grand Prix weekends as a fan years and years and years ago, but I've never I've, I've never seen this through any other prism other than working it, you know. So at the start of the year I was thinking it's just a small tweak. I'm not really going to notice that much of a difference and the sprint weekends are a bit weird anyway, so so whatever. But the the more the season's gone on, the the, the less I've liked it. I, I don't like that it's I don't like that it's disconnected from the from the Grand Prix because it's just it's an it's an irrelevance for everyone who isn't fighting for the few points position. Um, I, I I don't like the the division of the the weekend. I don't like that Park Ferme gets locked in after Friday practice and then is set for the rest of the week. I I like elements of that, but I just I there's something about it that I just feel is a bit unnecessarily restrictive. Because while I personally don't get massively overexcited by like the for, by the technical side of F1 in terms of I'm not following it for the setup tweaks the team makes through the weekend but there is something slightly strange to me about sending the best teams out there and not letting them get the most out of their cars I appreciate it's a fantastic engineering challenge and you might argue that actually that is something grand in its own right but for me I I just I just don't like that I don't I don't want to see several times a year basically teams getting kind of tripped up pointlessly and especially if it leads to stuff like disqualifications because planks end up being worn away too aggressively and that's ends up being purely because you've only got one 60 minute session so there's just a few things about it that I I think kind of sucked to be honest especially because the sprint in its limited form like it is just a watered down version of the Grand Prix anyway so it's not like this format it's just a slightly weird packaging of a fantastic thing in its own right. I think the sprint's perfectly fine, but it's absolutely no more than that. Do you have a statistical take on this, Sean? It's a tricky one. Maybe there's a left-field way to approach it. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a statistical take. I actually have a more uh, sort of human take, if you will, rather than looking at the numbers. I totally agree with Scott. I find that when we are doing sprints, I, I find it much more difficult to get my rhythm of the weekend if you know the three of us i'm sure understand our our rhythm our work rhythm of how we handle the weekend when the workload is going to happen what exactly we're going to focus on i feel like we're kind of throwing a curveball with the sprint because like um i don't know what you want me to say about sq1 i mean you know it's there's nothing much to say is there it's not really a setup thing it's just go out there and do a mini version of qualifying which we've by that point we've already seen it once um so yeah i totally get that and i totally I totally agree that the sprint, as it stands, is basically a—it's just a re, it's just a run through of the first segment of a Grand Prix. Um, with that said, it is improved in that 
Uh, we've gotten we've gotten away from the nonsense of you know pole position is the guy who's fastest on Friday. Then we have a sprint and we juggle the grid up, and the guy who's on pole position might not be starting from first on the grid. Uh, we uncoupled that after 72 serene years of having no problem at all with it. Um, finally, we got rid of that bobbins and got back to, okay, normal. Forget that. Sprint is now standalone. But now is the, the problem of dealing with its relevance to a weekend. Now, I actually think one way of doing this, and this is not very on brand for Formula One, and I don't think they'll ever do it, is if they remove like, the fuel flow limits and regulations for Saturday. So then you want to call it a sprint? Use all the power you got, guys. Now you're at maximum power for just this day. So you qualify standard for a Grand Prix. You race standard for a Grand Prix. But on Saturday, you can use everything you want at the trade-off of you might blow that engine up later in the season because you've overused it. But is it worth it to get a couple of extra points in the sprint? Is it worth a glory run for Haas to get on the podium, so to speak, in a sprint and further complicate my life by having a podium and a sprint, but not a Grand Prix. That would make the sprint more interesting. It would also make sprint qualifying quicker than conventional qualifying, which kind of parlays into the name, sprint qualifying. So that, to me, would be quite interesting because that actually has a knock-on effect on everything you do in the Grand Prix and the rest of the season because you have to trade off the life of the components to think, well, could we get a couple of extra points here or something a bit more headline grabbing, you know, that that would add to the intrigue to me. But I, I, don't, I don't think they'd ever actually do it. Yeah, but I think you've hit on something there that we talked about before, the need to make sure that the sprint is something distinct, something apart, something that offers something very different to what the Grand Prix does rather than just a watered-down repeat, which ultimately is what it is. So, yeah, I think that sort of thing is an interesting direction for them to, to go in. But I will say, and, and I imagine it must be a similar feeling for fans it's difficult to say that because it's quite difficult to have that perspective with where we where we are but as scott will confirm when we turn up for like the saturday of a sprint race i'm always saying well this just feels, i know what's coming this just feels pointless <laughs> and futile and irrelevant because grand prix matter because in 70 years time hopefully grand prix racing is still a thing in whatever a form and there'll be the next generation of virtual stat man who will care about how the stats interact with what happened now because grand prix matter and that's completely lost with the sprint, as far as I'm concerned. And that's, no matter what, all the other things, that's the thing that's just so fundamentally wrong about it that it just doesn't matter. It feels lightweight and pointless. And the fact that you often don't know what time a session's happening and you're often quite caught out on a sprint weekend where you're just like, hang on, isn't, isn't the sprint race about to happen? Oh, no, yeah, it's you, Friday. You can, it's Friday. <laughs> you can guarantee that at some point I'll be confused as to why the pit lane isn't open for the sprint. And then I'll remember a few minutes later, oh, it's sprint qualifying, isn't it? Yeah, well done. It utterly confuses me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, have, I obviously have to write content for the broadcasters after a qualifying session. And on a conventional weekend, obviously that's a Saturday night, that's Saturday night homework job back at the hotel room. Um, when it's a sprint weekend, I always sit there on Friday night thinking, well, do I really need to do this tonight? Or do I, should, should I do it tomorrow after the sprint? Because you know, what if there's penalties after the sprint and it affects the grid? For, I, I, I like, I'm not sure, like, do you need it? Because we're not going to talk about this on Saturday, are we? We're going to talk about it on the Grand Prix. So yeah, I, I'm similarly, I, I, I understand, I understand why they want to do this because it does give us friday back it does make friday more relevant as opposed to just running around practice all day i get it um those of us who are old enough to remember when there was a friday qualifying and a saturday qualifying yeah totally understand it's better for the spectators there's something to play for and so forth um but yeah it it, it is I, I would caution that I've never, I never, before the introduction of sprints in 2021, I never ever met a single fan who said, you know what would be great? Sprint races. I never met a fan who said that. I only ever met executives who said that. So <laughs> yeah. that, that is an important caveat. I, I never met fans who said, why don't we do sprint races? It would be so much better. It was always somebody in a suit and a tie who said that. And there seem to be two broad camps there's people who don't like the sprint and say it shouldn't exist and there's people who either like something like the sprint existing or tolerate it as a necessity of the commercially driven f1 but think the format's rubbish so it's like it doesn't actually work for anyone really so that that's the big problem i think yeah our summary here is they don't work and yeah that that seems surely there's be the case I, I would I would close by saying sometimes it is it can be objectively quite entertaining. I mean, you know, Lasalle's yeah. quite entertaining with Piastri winning and so on. 
Um, but ultimately, I don't think that I haven't met anybody who said if they went away, they would miss it. That, that's the thing. If we, if we just ran conventional weekends next year, I, I don't think I think people would just shrug their shoulders and go, hey, hey, you know, there's a sprint race this year. I forgot about that. And that, that would be as much as it would ever be said about its obituary. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just about whether having a sprint weekend is better than having FP3 on a Saturday morning, because just because something's slightly better than something that was there before doesn't mean it's necessarily good. So that, that argument always, I think, gets nullified. They can do a lot more with it. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Let's move on to our sixth one, which we'll throw at you, Sean, which is Red Bull have two main weaknesses, qualifying pace and Perez's speed. That's ripe for number crunching, surely. Absolutely. And first things first, Red Bull have one main weakness because it isn't qualifying pace. Verstappen was on pole 12 times this season. That's as many as Lewis Hamilton ever scored in any season of his F1 career. So we can... We've got to instantly discount the idea that Red Bull were weak in qualifying. They were just weak we in qualifying. We should have used the word relative weakness. That's relative, the yes. Yeah. As opposed to being... Weak, weaker. Crushingly dominant in qualifying compared to race pace. Um, but, it, you know, their race pace actually served to imply that they were not very good in qualifying, which, of course, uh, well, one car was. And in the early part of the season, two cars were. Of course, we started the year with a front row lockout for Red Bull in Bahrain which was only the second one that they'd had in five years. And the previous one was the last race of last season. So at that point, I think we were all thinking, you know what, Checo's onto something. He's finally figured out this conundrum of driving a, a Red Bull car with, with Max Verstappen as a teammate, and he's onto something. And I think early in the season, we all thought we might get a championship out of this. You know, I can remember standing on the stage race day in Miami saying, if Checo wins from pole today, he's a championship leader, no matter what Max does from ninth on the grid. You know, Max can be second with the fastest lap. Checo will be the championship leader if he wins this race. And what happened then? Max didn't lose another race until September is what happened then. <laughs> so I think we got the response there from Max Verstappen, emphatically so. In fact, Perez went through this crisis of confidence. He only had the one top four start in the last 16 Grand Prix of the season. Failed to reach Q3 nine times in the car that won the Constructors' Championship. Now that, the previous record for that that category is four times. Mark Webber didn't get uh, into Q3 four times at Red Bull in 2012, I think it was. Um, with that said, Perez was still 51 points clear of third place in the championship. Of those 51 points, he, he accrued 49 of those points in the first five races of, of the year. Um, so after that, it was, it was definitely a heavy lift for, for Checo. There were some times where he was completely outclassed. I looked at the, uh, the 10... The, the, the average of the 10 best laps for each driver in each Grand Prix. In Hungary, Perez was 0.918 per lap slower than Verstappen for his 10 fastest laps. In Belgium, he was 0.976 slower than Verstappen per lap. And Perez was on the front row of the grid in that race. And he started ahead of Verstappen. 
Um, but towards the end of the season, he got his act together a little bit more. Uh, in, in Abu Dhabi, that, that gap was down to 0.118. And he was the only driver within six tenths um, of Max in that particular department. So it was a very, um, shall we say, mercurial year for Checo. And I did think... I do think there was a genuine threat over his seat had he not secured second in the championship. It was a very laboured run to the runner-up spot, but he finally got it. And at that point, you can sort of make the Mercedes argument for when Bottas was being shown the way by Lewis and they were finishing first and second in the championship. Well, why change anything? We're 1-2 in the championship. Well, that's, that's the whole point of us being here. It was only once Max became an effective opponent to them in 2021 that they felt the need to make a change at last. Yeah, the interesting thing is, uh, to go back to that qualifying relative weakness, let's say, the thing I find interesting about that is one is it's basically because it's difficult to fire the front the front tyres, basically, to build a temperature into them. So you've got the front end for the start of the lap. That's the big challenge. And that's actually a virtue when it comes to race stints in terms of how hard it's working its tyres. So it's very easy to say, oh, well, they need to, they can make... If they can make the qualifying pace as good as the race pace, then they're going to be on pole by five, six, seven tenths every single time rather than it being a bit closer. But those things are not unrelated. So even even if you say, right, it's a relative weakness, it's actually part of the global strength of that car. So I guess that's the interesting thing. Scott, I guess if you're Red Bull, you'd be looking and say, well, it'd be nice to improve that. But actually, you don't want to compromise Sunday for Saturday, do you? Because then you risk having a Ferrari, which is a nice Saturday car over the last couple of years, but not the car for the race. Yeah, and the way to handle it is obviously ideally is um, if you've got a big enough Sunday advantage, can you give yourself a little bit more on Saturdays without costing yourself races on Sundays? And I would suggest that some of the winning margins for the Red Bull in Max Max Verstappen's hands this season would suggest that you could probably take a bit away from Sunday to help your Saturdays. It's not that easy though. You don't have a you don't have like a like a scale in front of you when you design the car and go, oh maybe we can just tip it a little bit back more towards qualifying. It'd be nice if you could. I think Haas is probably massively weighted in one direction if you did have it in that way. But the way Red Bull kind of have to look at it is if they come under a bigger threat next year, let's say it's just in a relative sense so it's in it's an equal closing of the gap across saturday and sunday they're going to be more vulnerable in qualifying and they might still have the fastest car in the race but they're going to have the fastest car by a margin to make up the places that they potentially lose on the grid on saturday because it i do that's why you have to stress it as a uh as a relative weakness because the number of poles this season is still a pretty silly number of poles for one team or one driver to get in one year but it's not as absolutely outrageously silly as the number of wins that Verstappen and Red Bull had in 2023 so clearly they weren't quite as effective on Saturday and it's such a ridiculous thing to say when the numbers are so high that they weren't quite as effective but that that's why you frame it that way and I think the I think the, the sort of Checo element feeds into that because you've got a car that's not perfectly set up for Saturdays but is set up brilliantly for Sundays and a driver who isn't particularly you know Perez is not one of the best qualifiers in Formula One he's probably one of the weaker qualifiers in Formula One but he's a fantastically reliable operator on Sundays when he has the car underneath him to 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 be confident and drive the way that he wants to so you've while Verstappen is potentially in a situation where he can offset or work around the limitations of the Red Bull in qualifying, get so much out of the car that he is at 100% of what the car's capable of in qualifying, and then is excellent on Sundays as well, Checo ends up in a much worse place on the grid because the car's not great, he's not great, and then he's doing damage limitation on Sunday. And if they are under pressure next year, they can't afford for both of those things to be the same as they were this year. If I may add on that, um, of course, it's not the first time we've seen a team that have been much quicker in race conditions than in qualifying conditions. I, I mentioned earlier how Charles Leclerc's travails lend themselves to the first turbo era. Of course, in 1984, Nicky Lauda won the world championship without ever qualifying on the front row. So, um, you know, it was ever, it's, it's something we've seen before in Formula One where a team could, could weight their car towards working in race conditions because, of course, that's where, that's where you get the points. So, um, yeah, it, it, in, a way, in a way, it bears resemblance between the MP42 McLaren 
and the Red Bull RB19 with about almost the same number of race victories. If you have a look at the MP42, over three years, I hasten to add, scored something like 22 wins. Um, uh, yeah, if you throw the sprints in as well, which some people do, of course, Scott, that means they've scored the, like almost the same number of wins. Hooray! <laughs> Convenient when you want to just adjust the stats to be wonderfully elegant. Exactly. But no, that's uh, exactly. Yeah. Not many people have compared those cars, so I like that. I always like uh, those kind of connections. Always a, an interesting one. Let, let's move on to our final point now, Scott, which is that the current rule set isn't working as hoped. Yes, um, there are there are two elements to this. One which um, actually has already been covered off, I think, already in the podcast, which was the thing Sean mentioned earlier about the closeness of the field, because that was actually one of the goals in the rule set. And I think we can say that that has been achieved with the exception of Verstappen. It's about it's about 1.5 percent on average over the season on dry pace yes. from front to back, so, which is very tight. So even though the um, the championship table and the way that the wins were. Uh, quote unquote shared out in 2023 would suggest that it's not closer than ever it it is and and that has been a success what hasn't worked is that the 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 racing the ability to follow it has taken a step back this year it's not that it's not that the rules were introduced in 2022 worked okay and then stayed okay for this year there was a regression it was noted early on the FIA felt that I think it was um, the 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 aim was to try and because uh, I think in 2021 you were losing half the downforce when I was it three car lengths behind the car in front or something like that and then I think the target was to take that down to about 15 20 percent if uh, if possible for the start of 2022 but it's at around 35 percent now um, this is what the FIA observed in the first half of the season and they feel that it was about broadly the same by the end of the year so it didn't get worse through the season there was just the way that the cars the cars did change a, a little bit, but the reality of what the rules allowed through 2022, and then how teams interpreted that, and uh, I guess um, pushed the designs as far as they could for the second year of the regulations, just made things worse. So the the, the feeling is that the dirty airs got a bit worse again, and the way that these cars generate their downforce, with the exception of the Red Bull, I think. Um, they they're just not they they still aren't set up to produce their downforce massively massively efficiently in the wake of a of another car and that is disappointing because obviously it was it was a big sell of the new regulations and uh i would say that i don't think too much has been sacrificed in order to achieve it it's not like it's the reason we have 300 kilo heavier cars or or something silly like that but it but it is disappointing when it was you know the most researched set of rules in f1 history in terms of how prepared the fia and f1 tried to be for it and for it to have been unpicked by what the fia basically admits are some loopholes that they've since found uh maybe they could have closed those but they didn't clock them soon enough and also they're probably going to leave those loopholes until 2026 so this is kind of what we're going to have for the next couple of years uh, that that is a little bit unsatisfying because i don't think anyone was expecting formula 1 to suddenly become a formula ford 1600 race at silverstone national but i think we were all hoping for a little bit better than what we saw at, at a lot of the time this year because there were still some good grand prix i think there will always be some good Grand Prix through the season, even if the rules absolutely suck, which they definitely don't at the moment, but they're not working quite as well as hoped. Yeah, I think it's a question of, it's a bit like the FP3 on sprint weekends thing. It's better than it was before the rule change, but it's not better by enough and that gap is closing and the, <laughs> is closing again. So yeah, that, that's the thing. I mean, there's all sorts of statistical approaches you can take to this, Sean. Have you have you had a look at it? Is this going to be one of those ones where the dreaded overtaking stats get involved? Because they're, I always find them a dangerous one, but worth looking at. Yeah, yeah, they're worth looking at. But I, I was going to caution. Uh, I, I sense your cynicism there, Ed. And I was going to caution <laughs> that overtaking stats can be tremendously influenced by the, the grid positions of the leading drivers. You know, if Verstappen's starting 14th, there's a good chance you'll have 13 on-track passes in the bank there um, compared to being on pole position. All, you know, also, the timing of a safety car can, can influence you know, who's going to be on new tyres, what likelihood there is of overtaking. Um, the weather, obviously. And the weather, the best, the best example of weather changing things was Zandvoort. Zandvoort last year, which was actually a reasonably competitive race, if you remember. The Mercedes guys nearly ended up finishing 1-2. There was only 18 on-track passes in that race last year. 
This year, we had rain at the start and rain at the end, and it went up to 112, which is the most in any Grand Prix since 2016. Um, so that shows you how quickly weather can influence these things. And then you've got um, uh, other things like track changes. You know, at Abu Dhabi, we, we used to beat up on Yas Marina for being terrible as a racetrack. The first race on that new layout in 2021, they only had 20 on-track passes, one of which, of course, you might remember, decided the World Championship. But last year, it was 53. This year, it was 60. So it's worked well at that track. So some areas, it's actually gone uh, quite well. Um, Here's the, the staggering thing. Um, overtaking actually as a number was up this year. Uh, the, the average per race was 39. Last year it was 36. That, that's the highest that we've had since we moved away from the 1800 mil cars at the end of 2016. Once you move to these wider cars with bigger wings, it's the highest number of on-track passes we've seen per race. Now, it is influenced by the Zandvoort number that I mentioned, which is ab abnormally high, even in, in, any, in any situation, over 100 is very unusual. And also the fact that we had over 80 in Las Vegas as well. So it is tilted uh, by a couple of outliers there. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean we can't look at that number and say, everything's great in Formula One, the numbers are up, we're all happy, because that's not, a that's not a, the true picture that we're getting. But it's also not absolutely awful either and we should be careful particularly those of us who have been watching formula one for decades to not sort of say oh it's it's all gone to pot it's you know formula one's rubbish these days i, I hear that from a lot of people and i always say uh, i don't think you remember watching formula one at some point 30 years ago and it would be literally like watching one guy a minute head and lead and nothing happening nowadays there's we, we might still have one guy a minute ahead, but we've got lots of other things going on uh, around the racetrack that actually are interesting battles do you, uh, Sean, do you and your uh, fellow members of the League of F1 Statisticians need to get in a room and actually uh, hammer out a consistent method for counting um, overtakes? Because I'm not, I'm not calling your method into question here, but I have seen two or three sets of numbers for overtakes this year that produce different numbers for different races. So why, in as short an answer as possible, can statisticians not agree on what counts as an overtake? Simple answer is that it is not, there is not a finite situation. For instance, are we counting the first lap of a race? Are we counting the GPS position of the car? Or are we counting the position at the finish line? Are we counting if a car gets passed and then repassed on the same lap? So that they're in the end of the lap in the same position they started. Is that two on-track passes or zero on-track passes? Well, that, all those definitions change. Was there a mechanical fault with the car? Did, did the driver run off the track? All of these things get taken in. So what you end up with is a situation where there's human influence on the number, as opposed to number of wins or number of poles. Um, you know, it's like, okay, this is the definition. Only one person gets that. Uh, with overtaking, um, it's much more of a broad brush. So different people and different outlets will give you different numbers. Um, generally speaking, uh, I, I follow the theory of we discount the first lap because the first lap is chaos theory. Um, and we discount situations where drivers were, uh, you know, uh, hobbled by mechanical dramas or went off the track. It has to be a, a legitimate pass and it has to stick, i.e. they have to actually cross the line at the end of the lap uh, ahead of another driver. So, yeah, so I, 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 do, I do take your point. Um, you can get different sources that have different numbers and some look, let's say, uh, very excitable. Some of them look like uh, a, a hell of a lot of overtaking took place uh, when maybe, you know, when you're watching at home, you're thinking, I don't remember it being quite that exciting. Um, so generally we try and, or I try to stick to passes that, that, that hold and are legitimate passes in a normal on-track battle. I'm going to very, very quickly read out something that I've just dug out from 2021, which is when I uh, wrote a piece explaining, do you remember when F1 introduced the overtaking award? Yes. Um, yeah. with, and um, and I actually, because I, I remember asking, can you send me the criteria for it? Because it'd be exactly what you've just explained there is it's so difficult to actually nail it down. So what's it going to count as? And 
I would suggest, based on your answer there, like I'm not, I don't want to give you too much credit for this, but it sounds like you might have had some influence on what's account here. I wish, because, I wish I had. <laughs> um, so, so basically, they said that, that they they intended to use the timing loops around the track, the mini sectors, basically to determine whether a position had changed. It must happen with both cars on track, so a car in the pit lane, whether that's entry or even exit, wouldn't count. Um, and uh, it, they would only register passes made by drivers on the same lap as each other, so passing lapped cars um, wouldn't count. And if you know if a car retired or went off while not in battle or had a, an obvious technical issue, that wouldn't count either. That feels to me like quite a robust and quite a nice set of criteria, actually, for determining whether an overtake counts. Yeah, I, I would agree. That's that that's pretty good. That that's the pretty much the way I would define it. Um, with overtaking in mini sectors, uh, obviously you need the full timing and scoring, which I mean, over to you, FIA and F1. You'll have to give <laughs> us that data yourselves. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, that that is that is pretty good. And I would also say that when we talk about you know record numbers of overtakes, we should caution that overtaking data has only been logged since the start of 1983. So we can't look at you know Monza 1965 when there was something like 45 lead changes in the race. You know, we don't know how much overtaking was done in, in races back then. Uh, so everything, everything we're working with is 1983 onwards. And ultimately, there's a difficulty in using that in isolation as a metric, as I said. The, the interesting thing is, though, with this question on the current rule set, is there's a limit to how much you can calm the turbulent airflow because of the laws of physics. And there's other factors, the tyres being very temperature-sensitive, Qatar, where they were forced to make the three pit stops showed that you can follow and push if you don't have to worry about the tyre life so much. So there's other factors in there. But certainly it's uh, it's the thing that everyone's always trying to improve. And they've it, it's sort of been a, it's been a part success, but not the success they wanted it to be. Let's put it that way. I, I'm, I'm still in the sort of the Ken Tyrrell camp, the late great Ken Tyrrell. It's like, well, if you don't want problems with the wings, just take the wings off then that will magically fix the problem overnight. You won't have any problems with dirty air over the wings if they're not there in the first place. Well, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a way of doing it. Obviously, the hopeless ground effect would, uh, would solve that. And the ground effect aero is a bit more, is more robust, but not absolutely robust. So, you know, fundamentally, you can't change the laws of physics in the reg. That's the, the bottom line. You've got to work within them. So we shouldn't expect miracles from this or from the 26 ones. So I'd actually say at least what they've done has had an effect. The direction of travel was was right, but they've just not gone far enough with it. So 26 is going to be the next big discussion point. So we'll reconvene in a few years and probably have a, a similar conversation. <laughs> well, thanks very much to Sean and Scott for your insight. Head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there, even in the off-season. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, The Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, MotoGP IndyCar, and Formula E podcasts as well. And check out our YouTube channel. Just search for The Race. Well... We're in the depths of winter now, but we're still going to keep podding, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.